People Make Things podcast, a behind-the-scenes look at the modern entertainment industry. I'm your host, Chris Natsume, known on the internet as Nine Squirrels. So, we are now talking to uh, one of my good friends, probably one of my best friends in the game industry, and also probably one of the top game entrepreneurs working in Asia today, Jan Marshall. He's actually coming to us from Bangkok, and I wanted Jan to do a quick interview or a quick uh, introduction of himself. So, Jan, why don't you why don't you tell us why we should care about you? Um, well, so hi everybody. Um, why you should care about me? I'm not so sure actually, but uh, apparently you do since you selected me to uh, take part in your podcast, which uh, I'm I'm kind of glad uh, about. But yeah, uh, well, I, I, I'm basically. I've been doing games for uh, about 20 years now, uh, 21 years in fact, first seven years at Ubisoft in France, I'm French originally, um, and then the rest of the time here in Bangkok where I started Sanu Games in 2003, uh, which was a, which is still a small studio. We were once bigger, uh, but right now we're back to, to a smaller size, and we have been doing a number of things. Um, well, I would say the only thing that would be in my uh, to my credit, is basically that we are still alive after 13 years, uh, which is not the case of that many studios out there. I, w- I would like to point out to people who don't know this, uh, one of the things that, that Jan is quite famous for is he's one of the uh, sort of longest-lived game studios in Southeast Asia. I believe you're the oldest game studio in Thailand and maybe the oldest independent game studio in Southeast Asia. So those are those are pretty serious bragging rights right there. Uh, I well, I, I'm probably yeah among the first waves of game studios in Thailand. Maybe not the oldest, but uh, among the first wave, yeah, certainly. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. So I'm I'm curious. You know, you're French. You're working at Ubisoft. You know, and and then suddenly there's oh, and now I'm running a game studio in Thailand. Tell tell us the story. How did how did that happen? How did you get down to Thailand? How did you start a studio? What's what's the story behind that? Oh, well, to, to keep it short, uh, I was bored. I was bored uh, of my life in Paris. Um, I was uh, bored with my job. Uh, I mean, Ubisoft is a great company. I'm not going to talk shit about them. Uh, but um, at that time, I was a programmer. And um, I mean, I had done scientific studi- studies. Then I started as a programmer. And that was great. But I wanted to somehow uh, evolve to other positions. And that was not possible, especially for me as uh, what happened is that I had a good start of career there, but eventually I had no sense of, uh, how to say, uh, politics, and uh, I got uh, somehow uh, crossed with the wrong persons. The, the opportunities were quite limited, so I was looking to do doing something else. Um, I was willing to basically, uh, when I reached about age 30 or in my late 20s, I was like, okay, I have been reasonably successful at life by standard metrics, like I have a reasonably secure and reasonably high paying jobs and etc. My parents can be proud, whatever, but I'm really not happy. Um, so uh, uh, I was like, okay, I if I'm going to do this, it's going to be now or never because it's not the, the kind of thing you, you do when you're 45. So um, I'm going to just resign and uh, uh, go to another place. I want to explore the world and the world and start a business. And uh, I thought like the, the most realistic business I can try and start is to just sell outsourcing game development service 
outsourced game development service from a place where uh, the cost of operation is cheaper than in Europe. There are many such places, and you may wonder why Thailand. Well, the answer is why not. I didn't know that many places. I wanted a place where, indeed, it would work for business and the quality of life would not be that bad. But, I mean, had you had you ever before then actually been to Thailand? Had you ever, like, gone down and been like, oh, this yeah, place is like, nice? Yeah, like one week on holiday. One, on so one, so with one week's experience in, in I, I'm assuming Bangkok, you were on holiday in Bangkok, or were you in some other part of Thailand? Yeah, I, I toured the country, in fact. Um, well, yeah, I, I didn't really know the country before I came, but it's not like there was any other country I knew better, to be but honest. But I mean, so, so without <laughs> any language skills or any like meaningful knowledge of the country, you're like, yep, I'm going to go to Thailand and start a business in Thailand. Yeah, pretty much. I, I gotta say, I've always, you know, I, I, this story's not new to me. I've known it for years. And I always tell people, this is one of the ballsiest things I've ever heard in the game industry. Uh, you know, for me, it took years and years to get up the guts to start my own game company. And, you know, I worked for a bunch of different game companies before I did. And the, oh, you, I, you didn't start much uh, later than me, actually. But like but when I did, later. I didn't I didn't go to to a country where I literally don't even know how to speak the language. And in, you know, just just moving to Thailand and and starting a whole new life in Thailand that by itself is a ballsy move. But to do it at the same time as starting your own first studio, this is a this is a pretty serious double whammy. I mean, how did you how did you like emotionally deal with that? <laughs> I, yeah, well, uh, before answering that question, there's one uh, bit of context that I should bring, which is that, um, you know, uh, the Southeast Asia went through a big financial crisis in 1997. Yeah. Um, and uh, in 2003, it was still recovering. And, um, I mean, obviously, uh, in Europe, things cost more than in Southeast Asia even now. But back then, it was crazy. Like, uh, with a minimal salary, European salary, you could be like a, <laughs> like an emperor in Southeast Asia. I mean, the, 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 the difference was uh, astounding. Uh, Sad, so sadly, no longer the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on which side, you, which side you're looking uh, at it. But anyway, um, yeah, so... With a rather reasonable investment, I could try my luck, and uh, hiring people wasn't so expensive by European standards. And uh, but I mean, uh, with, you know, without language skills or without yeah. connections or anything like that, how did you even find your first employees? How did how did you get started with this? So, so um, yeah, just to finish with my point. Um, I think the balls would be to start a business in France with the cost of operations and uh, uh, all the constraints that you have there. Oh, uh, I, I don't even know there. how you I, start a game uh, studio in I the developed value. world anymore. Yeah. Like I, to start a yeah. studio in San Francisco or Paris or London, I, I don't know if I'd call that balls or just like That's ignorance. What, I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. know how you would do that anymore. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, now to answer the question. Uh, well, emotionally, I, I kind of, uh, it was okay. I, I must admit, yeah, the week before uh, leaving to Thailand for good, I had some moments where I freaked out. I was like, am I really doing the right thing? <laughs> like uh, jumping without a parachute? Uh, <laughs> and I don't know where I will land and uh, I don't know how things will be. Uh, I'm giving up the uh, middle class life in Paris for that. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, uh, it was the process of um, maturation of decision that had been going for years because I was really n not happy, neither on a professional nor on a personal level with my life in Paris. So, yeah. Um, eventually, how did, I, how did I do it? I think uh, I, um, well, 
Yeah, you're right to point out that finding people to hire is by far the highest challenge. Uh, aside from that, there's really nothing that money cannot solve. Uh, the um, administrative process of registering a company in a language that you do not speak uh, is taken care of by somebody whom you will pay to do that. Um, yeah, but I mean, in in terms of of you know, you're you're in you're in Bangkok. All right, I need programmers and I need artists. How do you even how do you even go about interviewing people and and getting them into the studio when when you know you don't even speak their language? I mean, you're you're limited to people, I guess, who can speak English. But uh, how did you even how did you even make those connections? Um. Well, before going there for good, uh, I spent one week there six months earlier. Uh, that was not the week of holiday. That was another week I spent there. Uh, first, I mean to get authorization from the board of investment. They needed to interview me to, you know, because uh, I mean the general um, regime in Thailand is that you cannot be a majority shareholder of a company as a foreigner, and there are exceptions to that regime, which I got, uh, and which uh, it's which is reasonably easy to get when you start a technology company, uh, but then I had to go there anyway. So w one, once I was there, I took advantage of my time to uh, try and go visit universities, so I uh, emailed universities um, in English language, of course, and telling them, hey, uh, this is my project. I, uh, I have been working at Ubisoft for like uh, seven years, and I'm willing to start a studio here. Uh, can I come talk to you and uh, see how easy it is to recruit students? So I was received by a few universities in Bangkok and w by one in Chiang Mai, which is a big city in the north of the country. And actually, uh, in the University of Chiang Mai, uh, the dean of students let me introduce myself in front of the class of uh, IT, I mean, uh, software engineering students. Um, and uh, three of them applied with me when I started the company, so I was lucky with that. Did you hire any of them? All three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, there you go. Well, two of them uh, stayed a short time, in fact, but one of them stayed more than 10 years. He just resigned last year, eventually. Oh, wow. So I want to I turn a little bit to games. Um, so how are you doing? It's, it's a really rough industry these days. I know you and I have talked about this a great deal you know, mm -hmm. with with the the rise of free to play, and I don't want to get in a big free to play bashing or whatever like that. Uh, I'll do that in a different podcast. Um, <laughs> how how are you how are you surviving? How are you how are you getting through this rough time in games? And and you know, you've had other rough times. You say you know you were larger at one point. You've contracted now. I know that's not the first time you've expanded or contracted. How how yeah. do you how do you get through these rough times? What 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 is your what? How are you still here after thirteen years and other people aren't? Uh, well, it's um, circumstance, I would say. Uh, it's, I was lucky uh, in 2005 to be accepted as a uh, Nintendo, um, how to say, yeah, Nintendo licensee for the Nintendo DS. In fact, I was one of the first to ask before anybody knew that, the, including myself, that the console would be successful. Um, and uh, then, despite the studio being new and having no experience, I got the license, which Sony had rejected. Uh, in fact, uh, I was rejected by Sony at the time. And uh, it turned out that um, 
the Nintendo DS became very successful very quick and publishers were hungry for small games that they could publish uh, and they, they would pay like uh, $50,000 for a Sudoku, Sudoku at the time. It was crazy. So uh, that's where uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, I was lucky to make a lot of money. And, by, and at that time, the um, uh, cost difference between the West and the East was still significant. Uh, so I built a, how to say, yeah, I, I built a comfortable mattress of money uh, during those years. It only lasted two years and then there was a um, uh, big uh, crack of 2009 for the game industry when uh, basically everybody stopped doing anything for the Nintendo DS. Uh, Nintendo survived it but eventually the next generations of consoles were not nearly as successful. Uh, we had to um, how to say, uh, we had been doing only work for hire. We had to uh, eventually branch into starting our own games because we just didn't have enough uh, orders to fill to fill the work prior pipeline, and I would say ever since then I had uh, been running a business that was either barely profitable or making a loss, and I have survived because I had this initial comfortable mattress. Uh, retrospectively, I can tell myself, okay, I should have cashed out by then, by back then, and I would be richer than I am now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, well, eventually I, I stayed, and um, well, we hit a low really last year, uh, the beginning of 2016. Um, there was no more cash. We, we all did, Jan. The 2016, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a terrible year. For, I don't know a single yeah. developer who said, like, wow, 2016 was awesome. I don't, I don't know anyone who said that. Yeah, at, the, at that time, uh, we had no cash. We didn't see any order coming in the pipeline. We could barely survive. We, could, we, we contracted the cost to as cheap as we could be. Uh, and uh, I, to be honest, at that time, although I didn't tell anybody because that would have been the immediate end of everything, I was really considering shutting down the business. Um, I... Uh, yeah, I was like, okay, what are we fighting for? There's nothing left. And, uh, well, I, I, eventually, somehow, I didn't shut down. I managed to find smaller, tiny deals here and there, even non-games like a website development, uh, whatever. Uh, and um, we survived through the year. And then... Uh, at the end of last year, came from uh, one of our historic clients, uh, the biggest order we've ever dealt with. Uh, and now so now we're hiring again, and uh, we're uh, doing everything we can to do that project properly. So if, if you don't, I'd, I'd just like to point out, you know, and, and this is yeah. an experience that I've had as well, and the other successful devs, you know, our, our studio's been around about 11 years, not quite as old as yours, but in a similar world. And, and it's this story that you're telling of... You know, when the times were good, we made a lot of money, but we didn't do anything stupid with it. We, we stuck it all in the bank and we didn't go out and buy air on chairs and razor scooters and a big, huge studio. And, you know, at, at, at Boom Zap, we always make the joke that we never bought T-shirts. You know, you always see the studio that they do well. And the first thing they want to do is like, how do we spend this money? Let's let's buy everybody team T-shirts. And so everybody I gets that, <laughs> I know, I know. But you get your shirts cheaper in Thailand. But but even yeah. so, like this this idea that. That when the times are good, you have to spend the money. And the studios that do that are the ones that when the times get bad, they don't have that mattress, like you say, to fall back yeah. on. And, and they've, and they've forgotten how to live cheap. They forgot, you know, uh, Boomzap went through a very similar curve. We had very, we had very good times. We had very bad times. And during the bad times, that mattress of money from the good times and those habits of not spending a lot of money and being, 
a, a very uh, cost-effective studio. That's what gets you through those times, and and that's the the difference. It's you know if you can ride it through those bad times, sooner or later, it'll pick yeah. up again. And the studios that close down are the ones that can't ride it through that bad time. And usually they can't ride it through that bad time because during the good times they spent their money or they developed bad habits or they they were they right. were scared to con- you know and it's you know I I I know as a as a business owner one of the sh- most shameful things to go to a game convention and admit to everybody is my studio is smaller than it was last time I talked to you right that's a like this this clear sign of failure but on the other side. That's what you have to do if you're going to stay alive as a studio. Yeah, I, I would not be ashamed. I mean, I am. Uh, I am. I I go to studio. You know, I I can remember. You know, we we were up to 97 people at one point, and right now we're yeah. about 30. And so yeah. that's that's you know that's a lot of people who I had to look in the eyes and say I fucked up, and because I fucked up, I don't have the money to pay you anymore, and it's not your fault. It's my fault. And shit, sorry, man. Right, and I had to have that conversation with whatever ninety-seven minus thirty is. What's that? Thirty or sixty-seven people? That—that's a lot of people to have that conversation with. It's a lot of failure to deal with. And then you go to a conference and somebody says, "You know, how are you doing?" And you have to say, "Well, we're we're sixty-seven people less than we used to be." But if you don't do that, then you don't get to go to the conventions anymore because you don't have a company anymore. And that's right. that's the opposite side. So you you have to you have to fight your way through that. And it's it's. People don't like to talk about failure in the industry because you always have to have that 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 bullshit glow of success, you know. Right, right. Actually, I think that one uh, lecture subject that's really severely missing from all of the conferences I've been to is uh, how do you handle failure? Uh, how do you manage the closure of a studio? Because uh, we've seen so many times in I've seen that in Thailand, I've seen that in France. In fact, uh, studios that close and basically uh, drag down a number of partners with them because mm-hmm. they don't pay the bills and etc. Uh, and I think most of the times, as much as I have seen, it's because um, the founders of the studio are in such a level of distress that they don't realize uh, that basically. Um, that they are behaving uh, badly to the partners who have trusted them or that uh, they are or even they realize that but they, they don't realize the long-term consequences it has because when you create debt that you don't repay eventually you pay it with your reputation and you're done in the industry um, yeah it's it's so, interesting I I've been through many studio closures uh, luckily yeah. I haven't had to close my own studio yet but uh, yeah. I've certainly been through you know at various levels of management the closing of studios that I worked at and the one thing I learned that, that's been critical for us and our, our success has been to be very open and very honest with the staff about how things are going. You know, I, right. when, when things have been bad at BoomZap, nobody's been surprised, you know, because the, the, right. the worst is when you have to do those layoffs and you have to like surprise somebody with it. You know, oh, things are going great. Things are going great. And then the next week, oh yeah, half of you don't have jobs. And you hear that story <laughs> over and over in the game industry and right. you just think like, who the hell did that help? You know, and so I've I've tried, and it's hard because you you know to it, it's a it's much more challenging to keep a studio and a team motivated when you're honest with them about how bad the chances of success are. Right, but, right, right. Yeah, that, 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 that's a difficult balance to find, indeed. Because I mean, if you're too gloomy, because you you somehow have very. Da- 
are very much doubting yourself whether the business will continue and you expose that bluntly to the team you can be sure everybody will look for a job and you can't blame them Uh, at the same time well if you uh, or even even if they're not looking for jobs they're like you know why why am I working so hard on this it's never going to ship anyway you know there's this 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 you know once you admit defeat it's it's very hard to get anyone excited and so yeah it's a it's a difficult I, place to be honest with your staff and honest about how things are going and at the same time right. keep people motivated, keep keep people from going and looking for work. It's a it's a real challenge, but it's a we never talk about this in the industry and every single studio goes through it at some point. I don't know a single game studio that hasn't dealt with this, but we never talk about it. Yeah, and on the other hand, um, somehow misrepresenting uh, the situation by saying, hey, everything's going to go great, etc. I mean, uh, well, indeed, there's the problem that uh, when you have to do a 180 degrees turn, uh, it's uh, you lose it all. But even before then, I mean, you're not credible. I mean, your yeah. staff aren't stupid. Yeah, they, 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 you know, and that's that's the way I've always felt is they, they can they can read the writing on the wall, and if you're honest with them, then at least they, at least they know you're being honest with them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So to, to that, this is getting depressing. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit to something yeah. even more depressing. Um, <laughs> so yeah. so you and I were both just at Casual Connect in Berlin, and we. I don't know how much time you spent over at the Indie Prize booth. I went over to the Indie Prize booth and looked at all the projects in Indie Prize. And, you know, there were good games and bad games and, and a mix. But mm-hmm. just historically, I know that in two or three years, 90% of the kids that I saw over there aren't going to be in games anymore. Just historically, that's true. Um, their their projects are going to fail. They're going to get yeah. discontented. They're going to walk away. They're going to say, you know, screw games. This doesn't work. And they're, you know, most of these kids won't be here in three years. Almost all of them will be gone in five. Maybe one or two of those companies or projects or or people will still be here. Um, what can we well, what, I mean, what what can we do yeah. for these kids? How can we how can we help them? What information can we give them to better their odds? Hmm. Well, it's true that uh, the vast majority of them uh, will no longer exist at their present teams or projects or uh, however uh, or whatever. But I think, well, some of them, if they want to work in the game industry anyway, I mean, they will. I mean, uh, doors of bigger studios will be open to them. That's also what happens. Well, I mean, we we, we know for for a game professional, whether they work for a small indie studio or whether they're working for Ubisoft. Last time I yeah. checked, the longevity of a game development professional is three years. That's that's the average amount of time that a human being stays in the game industry is three years. It's actually a little bit less. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's pretty brutal. The people I know. Um, well, well, of course not among the people we know, because the people we know are a bunch of old timers who've been in the industry forever. Right, uh, right, right. But, uh, but if you if you yeah. look at the whole industry as as a whole, I, the last time I checked the figures, the the average longevity of a game developer was about three years before they were like, yeah, fuck this shit and got out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, some will. That's uh, that's obvious. But uh, so how do how can, do we, how do we make that yeah. better? How do if if there were one person, let's say it was your let's say it was your daughter, and she decided she wanted to be a game developer, God help her, um, and and you were going to give her some advice to be like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna power past the three years that everyone else wimps out at. What what would you tell her? Uh, well, you know, I mean, every two years in the in my children's uh, school, there is this uh, career day where uh, uh, volunteer uh, adult professionals go and talk to kids. And I, I always go and I'm the only one working in games who did that. And kids, I mean, there's, there's always a bunch of them who are who do have an interest in games. Um, 
and I tell them, well, uh, this is driven by passion. Uh, this is not a sec- an industry that manages a lot of money. It's not like automotive or healthcare or whatever. I mean, people will never spend as much for gaming as they do for other parts of their lives. Um, and uh, so you, you, your uh, dedication and your efforts uh, are not likely to be valued as much as they would be in other industries. And uh, if you make the uh, choice to go in games, you have to be ready to accept that. I mean, of course, there are exceptions. There are cases, there are success cases, but the odds are not that you will be one of those. So, yeah, uh, that's it. Um, well, I mean, I, I do the same things. I, I get asked to talk yeah. to, you know, young college kids or high school kids. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably a lot more negative than you are. My, my, my core answer is if you're thinking about getting into games, don't do it. Uh, because well, I do that. I'll tell you, I do that for those who tell me they specifically they want to be artists, um, because I tell them, listen, you are at uh, an inter- international school whose tuition fees, even for primary or junior high, uh, cost an arm and a leg to your parents, and I don't think your parents want you to earn like uh, you know five hundred dollars a month later on. Uh, so. Um, well, I mean, I, the one—I I guess for me, a lot of people come to me and they say, oh, "I really want to make games," and I say, "Well, do you want to make games or do you like games?" I mean, I, I like to watch movies. I, I like to yeah. listen to music. I love music. Music's my favorite thing in the world. I like music more than I like video games. I'm mm-hmm. not a musician, <laughs> right? And yeah. and the 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 skill and the art and the craft of being a musician and making music is such a radically different thing from the skill and the art and the craft of of listening to music which has almost right. no skill or art or craft right um that, that the you know and people somehow people seem how to get that like they can look at a guitar and be like yeah that looks like a lot of work to do so i'm i'm not even going to pretend that i'm going to be a musician but when they look at games for some reason they kind of get they they get lost and they're like well i know how to make a good game i know what's fun and they all say the same thing i want to be a game designer because i have all these ideas for games well you know i got some great ideas for a book too that doesn't make me an author right right and and it it's very difficult for me sometimes to 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 not get real dismissive of their dreams and i try not to be too dismissive but my my yeah. my you know when i get invited to those things my first answer is you know unless you have actually tried your hand at making a game using, you know, Game Maker Pro or something like that and found yeah. that experience enjoyable, you probably shouldn't be dreaming of making a game. It's probably But but let's let's move aside from that. To, yeah. to, to get yeah, away from that. I, I think let's well, let's take somebody who's actually in the industry. We're talking about these guys that were over at the Indie Prize. Mm-hmm. They're making games, they know how to make games, they're obviously inspired. They're here, they want to make a go of it. What do you tell those guys? How do you how do you help them still be here in 13 years like you are, or I guess now 20 years that you've been in the industry? Well, the the hard truth is that not all of them will be. Uh, that's a fact. Uh, I think uh, well, they, they they somehow know it when they go into it, or they have to actually. They have to know it. Um, the the thing I would say in what I have seen is that um, well, they really. Many of them really do what they have in mind without much consideration for marketability. Uh, mm. And uh, I, I would tell them, hey, um, 
this is uh, how to say yeah i mean uh, doing what you what you what you want to do and what you're good at is one thing and it's important actually because if you try to tackle a domain in which you have no expertise or no knowledge you are very likely to fail uh, but it has to coincide with an actual market opportunity and you should uh, learn that early enough in fact learn what the market consists of uh, and uh, what your chances are uh, what your revenue projections are even if actually it's very hard to make revenue projections because I mean it can go from uh, uh, from one to ten or even zero to ten. Uh, but you know uh, what the median revenue projections are for the game uh, platforms and genre that you're doing. I mean this kind of thing, uh, so that they can understand uh, what they are getting themselves is into, and also obviously uh, what the competition is. Uh, what games are you putting yourself uh, up against? Because if you're going to do like a first-person shooter like, that looks like the new uh, Doom, for example, uh, you don't have a business because, uh, I mean, who, who's going to play an indie game that does that? Yeah, I, I, I see the same thing. I remember when I was, when, you know, I, and I made a point. I actually took an hour and a half at the end of each day to go, you know, play all the games over in the indie prize because I was very interested in what's going on these days. Yeah. And while I saw a lot of stuff that was interesting, it's exactly like you said. I did not see a lot of products there where I thought to myself, the industry is wanting this. There's a bunch of people yeah. out there who want to play this. There was a lot of stuff that you looked at and you were like, "Well, that's that's interesting. That's really that's really fascinating." And and you you played it for five or ten minutes and you thought, "Well, that's 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 interesting," you know, yeah. from a from a sort of intellectual standpoint. Right. But when you when you asked yourself, "Is this something that that's going to go up on Steam and and people are going to going to want to play a lot of it and they're going to put money down on it?" Are our streamers going to stream this for a couple weeks and and you know get into it? Is there is there something that that requires me to pay into it? The, yeah, the answers were steps. no, right? Yeah, there, there, there's many steps. There's the uh, there's the suitability for platforms. There's the discoverability. Will people even know about this game? Then there's uh, the capability of the game to attract uh, the interest of the audience. Uh, then indeed there is the um, uh, how to say uh, the capability capability of the game to retain the audience and to uh, have a word of mouth that works well. So I mean, yeah, there, there, there's many factors indeed, and uh, uh, it's uh, it, it's rare to find to find an indie project that doesn't fail uh, in multiple of those factors yeah so all right so that's that's all the negative side let's let's try to take something yeah. a little more constructive out of this where do you get your ideas from when, when you know, we talked about when you put a project yeah. together you have to think about the marketing you have to think about how you're going to sell it you have to think about your audience you have to think about whether or not your your company is capable of making something in that space that's going to be competitive we know all of that so when you sit down and you try to put your ideas together when you're coming up with something new. What's your process for doing that? How do you? How? What are the nut and bolts about how you do that? Okay, so um, well, my company does two things. One of them is uh, bringing our own games to the market through the digital uh, channels, and the other one of them is uh, work for hire for publishers. Uh, so uh, right now we're doing only the latter because we got good opportunities as I, as I mentioned uh, and because our latest um, uh, venture in uh, self-funding and publishing a game was less than successful. Uh, so when it's publishers, it's easy because basically they come with something that they want done. I, I like, uh, by the way, whenever a developer tells you, oh, our last game was less than successful, you can translate that to we lost a fuck ton of money. 
I haven't done cost control because I'm that bad as the, at uh, business management. Uh, but I don't think I will lost a fuck ton of money. Uh, but yeah, I, we lost I have something. recently. I can tell you, I've done some projects that I genuinely lost a fuck ton of money. Um, okay. So yeah, so maybe I'm projecting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it was not a complete failure. Uh, it's uh, yeah. I mean, the unfortunately the console manufacturers don't want me to um, publish the figures, so I won't. But uh, yeah, it's. I think it was in the median for indie games uh, on those platforms, mm. but still, it's not good enough. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was a Bomberman clone, by the way, uh, called Bombing Bastards or Bombing Busters. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, how how did how did I pick this idea, for example? Uh, in fact, um, well, that was typically the market analysis. Like, uh, hey, uh, wh where's Bomberman gone? Why, why is there no Bomberman? Oh, uh, Hudson has been purchased by Konami, and Konami has not been interested in developing this brand anymore. Uh, wouldn't there be some people who uh, long for the brand and would like to play this game and etc.? Uh, let's make a clone. So that was my idea. So when uh, when you say it was not as successful as you hoped it would be, what what do you think went wrong? What do you what where where do where did you miss out? Uh, my idea was not that great because uh, yes, people long for the brand more than they long for the gameplay, mm -hmm. and the idea of a clone is unappealing to most. Mm. Um, so there's that. Uh, there was problems. There were problems with. Uh, in fact. Um, at that time, uh, choosing Unity to go on console was not a good option, and we lost a lot of time uh, to, how to say, bring the game to the market. In fact, uh, uh, covering all platforms from Wii U to PC to PS4 to Xbox One to mobile to etc. Uh, took us more than two years in total, just because at that time Unity was not quite ready, and by the time it was ready, it was no longer the same version of Unity. And uh, that's, that's a long time on a Bomberman clone, too. Yeah, right. Um, so we, we spent more uh, money than we should have. Um, also, we tried to tackle an online multiplayer mode, which we felt was needed, uh, but we didn't have the know-how, and we made the mistake of making it, making it uh, peer to peer, uh, which mo mostly didn't work for like 80% of the players. Um, on the other hand, given the uh, budget premium nature of the game, uh, it would not possible to fund a paid server architecture for for this game. So we were a bit stuck with that. Uh, finally, in fact, on PC and PS4, there is a, a dysfunctional online multiplayer mode, and on Xbox One, which was released later, I just decided to make it just offline, and that's fine. Mm. So, sometimes, I don't know, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I feel yeah. a lot of the time like, like the game industry just moves faster than I do. You know, you, mm -hmm. you start a project, and by the time you're you're neck deep into the project, the industry has already moved on, and you seem like you're working on yesterday's project. And it just it's constantly seems like every day you pick up the, well, I, I say pick up the newspaper. Nobody reads a newspaper anymore. You you open up the internet and you you start reading through whatever it is you're reading, and you realize that somebody has gotten the jump on you and done something that's one step ahead of what you're doing. And it's constantly that way. The, the industry moves so fast. How do you how do you handle this? How do you because I haven't figured out a good solution for it yet. What's what's been your solution for somehow keeping up with the the pace at which the industry moves? 
Mm, well, if you follow the trends, then you're going to be late by definition, I would say. Um, it's, uh, yeah, uh, probably uh, willing to surf on a trend uh, is only viable, if it is even, uh, on very, very short project like Flash games, or I don't know, I mean, well, those don't exist anymore, but you see what I mean. Uh, if you have any significant development time, then... Uh, I mean, uh, don't follow uh, like uh, eph eph ephemeros, is that a word? Trends. Um, rather, uh, yeah, I would say you probably, I mean, one of the, I mean, some of the successful studios over time are successful because they find a niche in which they can somehow uh, have a public that will follow them at their own pace uh, and they don't follow trends. They are, they exist somehow in their own reality, in their own world. Um, and, um, you know, they, yeah, uh, well, th there will be like, for example, I don't know, in, uh, if you take like mid-core strategy games, uh, publisher like Paradox, uh, they have a number of brands that they develop at their own pace. And, uh, yeah, they, they try to do mobile free to play now, but really their core, uh, as far as I know, maybe I'm wrong, uh, remains PC premium. Yeah, I, I know, you know, I, I think Paradox is one of my favorite companies for exactly this reason. Mm -hmm. They've found their audience and they found a group of people that love what they make. And when they're making their new games, they're not looking at the rest of the world and saying, okay, we need to go compete with Civilization or something like that. They're saying, they're looking at their last game and saying, we made this game and people really liked it and we have this audience. What does this group of people yeah. want to play next? And they're, they're building it from sort of a captured audience that they already have out. And I think they're, they're enormously successful studio because they've developed that, that loyal following, that loyal audience that's interested in what they have to say as a studio. And they have a very clear voice as a studio. When you, yeah. when you, when you play a paradox game, you, you know what you're getting out of it, you know? And yeah. I, I think there are other studios that, that do this well as well. I think, you know, Supercell is another studio that they're, you know, you kind of know what a Supercell game is going to be like. You kind of know yeah. what you're getting out of that. And I think they've played right. that into a very, very successful sort of long-term strategy. Yeah. And that, that's with a very casual, with very new games. Um, whereas other people who've tried to kind of capture Supercell's success by cloning their games have largely been unsuccessful because that audience says, well, I don't need that. I've got Supercell. I've got, you know, I've already got right. this game. I don't, I don't need your Clash of Clans clone. I'm, I'm playing Clash of Clans, and I'm, I'm having a good time with that. I learned that the hard way. We actually tried to make a Clash of Clans clone, and it was a miserable mm -hmm. failure. I mean, there's no other word for it. It was a miserable failure. And in yeah. retrospect, I looked back at it, and I was like, I don't even know what I was thinking. Why, why did I think I was going to out-Supercell Supercell? You know, right. it's not like while I was building my clone of their game that they just like all went home. You know, they were already they already had an audience and they were already figuring out what does my audience want next. And unless I had something genuinely uh, new and interesting and innovative to offer that audience, why why would have I have ever convinced them to leave a place that they were already having a good time and having fun? So yeah, I think that's really good advice. Yeah. 
So I yeah, that's probably that's probably something I uh, felt that uh, I mean my company is 13 years old and it doesn't have like a public image that uh, of expertise in one domain one subject that's something I have yet to build yeah probably I, because we 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 did work for hire and when you do that you take whatever comes yeah we we actually you know probably the most successful period that my studio ever went through was when we were making hidden object games and it was exactly that we had a very captive audience we had people who knew what we made they wanted to play the next one or whatever we made. The only problem was there were so many people in that particular uh, genre that it became very crowded, and, and over time that audience kind of got bored and, and left. And and I think right. where we failed is we didn't come up with a great answer for what does this audience want next. And instead we said, oh, let's go chase some other audience. And you know when I look at sort of the great failures of BoomZap, I think one of the biggest failures we had as a studio and this is a this is a really depressing. Let's talk about our failure interview. But let, I'm going with it. I'm I'm continuing. Um, you know, <laughs> one of the one of the big failures that we had was we had this audience, and at some point we said, you know what, this audience is getting smaller and they're leaving, and we didn't ask ourselves, well, what are they leaving to go do? What 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 is it that we didn't give them, and how do we how do we provide that? Instead, we said, you know what, we're, we're done with that audience. Let's move on to a totally different audience. And we started from scratch again. And that was probably a very foolish move for us as a studio. And looking back on it, probably not my smartest decision as a, as a business owner. Right. Huh. So <laughs> any, anyway, I want to I shift gears to uh, an, yeah. another hard topic um, because we, we haven't talked enough about things that are hard. Um, <laughs> stepping away from games and, and game development and that sort of thing a little yeah. bit and just talking about being an entrepreneur – I know yep. for myself, most of my best friends actually are other game industry veterans, and, and largely they're other people that run game studios. If I were to go through a list of like the 10 people I spend the most time talking with, I think nine yep. of them run game studios. So how do you – for me, this is sometimes problematic because there's this, there's this weird world where you've got mm -hmm. friends who are in the business who are – at some level competing with you, sometimes working with you, sometimes they're working with people that you don't like or they're working with people that yeah. you do like. How do you how do you sort of set in your mind how you work in a world where your business life and your personal life because I know a lot of your personal life is game industry as well. How do you how do you separate that in your head? How do you live in a world where your your business and your personal life are so deeply intertwined? Well, that's an interesting question. Do you need to separate? In fact, um, it's funny because if you look, for example, uh, sometimes when I add people on Facebook, I mean, I, I have had a few times people in the West who told me, hey, sorry, uh, my business connections are on LinkedIn and Facebook is for friends. So they wanted to draw the line. Okay, yeah, I'm not one of their friends. Um, and in... In Asia, or I've, I've never Thailand, had anyone uh, actually tell me that, but I think that might be why some people haven't accepted me on Facebook. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I, in fact, uh, most people who don't accept you on Facebook, I would assume, I mean, some of them at least uh, would think like that. Uh, I guess the the case in which some people, the cases in which some people would actually need feel the need to justify in writing were like uh, because. I was one of their clients, so mm -hmm. uh, you know they uh, uh, not accepting me without without explaining why. So, would, would, so would. If, anyway, if if you say uh, yeah. that you're not making that clean separation, how do you how do you deal with the stresses?
chances of finding out, you know, one of your best friends actually yeah. just got a job that you were bidding for or something like that? How do you well, – I've actually had that well, happen. I've had one of my best friends and myself both bid for the same job, and I got it, and, and he, he didn't. Got it. No, I got it, and he oh, didn't. Oh, you got it. Okay. Um, and it was it was a little bit weird. You know, it was a – you know, we, we got over it, but for a little bit it was it was kind of funky and weird. Like, how do you deal with that? Oh, well, um, that – I mean, that's life, you know, you can't, I mean, jealousy is not a productive feeling. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I think uh, if my friend would have the job, I would be happy for for him and I would move on. I mean, well, it's like, well, it's easy to say when you're not in a situation of dire uh, financial need or anything. Uh, I would admit that it's probably much harder if uh, if you were really counting on this for your life. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, what, what, I, what I was meaning is that here in Thailand, uh, people don't use LinkedIn. They use only Facebook, whether it's for friends or for business. Uh, the business groups in the Thai game industry are on Facebook. Uh, so uh, people are not used to making that distinction, that, that distinction match. And uh, I think um, I, I went with that flow, in fact. I don't need to classify uh, the relationships uh, I have with different people. I, I found, you know, when Google Plus tried to compete Facebook and to compete with Facebook and ultimately failed. Uh, I found that they had one of the worst ideas uh, they could come up with, which was to create circles of friends and to force people into organizing their contacts into circles. Yeah, I and, was weirded out by that too because I didn't. I was yeah. like, I don't really want to define my every. I didn't want to sit down yeah. and put a label on every friend. Like that felt right. fucked up and weird to me. And I was like, who are you to tell me that I have to like classify all my friends into eight groups? You know, like. It, it, it felt very odd to me, quite honestly. Right. And, uh, well, a friend, I mean, um, a friend can be at some point a competitor, at some point somebody you're, uh, you're doing business with. By the way, I mean, a competitor is not necessarily an enemy, especially at the, at the pace things move in our industry. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you, you better keep, uh, keep good relations with everybody because you never, you never know actually, uh, uh, whom you will need in the future to be good with. Well, not only be, that, I mean, sorry. it was it was at the last at, at Casual Connect on the last day at Casual Connect. I think we had what fifteen people sit down to dinner, yeah. and at that fifteen person dinner, I think probably eight different company CEOs were represented in that at yeah. that one table. And these are all people that are that are you know theoretically competing or competing competing with each other, yeah. uh, and yet we're I, a lot of us are all best friends. So for me, it's always been it's been a little bit weird, but I've I've had to get used to it, I guess. Yeah, um, and well, doing business with friends is not, I mean, uh, uh, is not a prime to me, uh, as long as, uh, I mean, it's clear what, was, what we're doing. Uh, the disappointments I have had in life is when somebody pretends to help me just because we are friends and, in fact, uh, without telling me, take a, a vested interest in such or such thing. Uh, that would typically be a case of, well, oh, this guy is not really my friend. Uh, but as long as things are clear, uh, then there should be no problem. I've, I've very rarely run into that game industry one of the you know the game industry's got a lot of terrible crap in it and that we could sit and yeah. talk all day about all the terrible crap but one of the things that i think is a real bright light for the game industry is some of the best people i've ever met in my life work in games 
just just some incredible people and a lot of them run game companies and where i think a lot of us could be a lot more competitive and and whatnot we tend to kind of band together and chat with each other and help each other out and it's it's right. sometimes been kind of surprising me i want to change gears one one last time um i actually asked yeah. on facebook if anyone had any questions that they wanted to ask Jan. And yeah. I actually got uh, one question about being a foreigner and setting up a studio in Thailand. We kind of talked about that. But both right. uh, Maxime and Carl uh, wanted to know about mm -hmm. your hobby. And for those of you who don't know Jan, the easiest way to know who Jan is when you walk into a game convention, he's always the French guy with the big-ass camera. And every, I mean, I've, I've gone, I don't know how many places I've been with you, and there's always a big-ass camera tied around your neck. And I, I, what, what, what's, what is the story? When did you suddenly become sort of the de facto photographer for the game industry? What, how did that happen? It wasn't so sudden. In fact, I first bought that DSLR camera in 2011, I believe, uh, because uh, I was. I wanted to use it to make videos, in fact, uh, to uh, of myself talking uh, when announcing games on YouTube. This was a terrible idea, actually. I soon realized that um, just putting out a trailer of the game without my mug talking uh, was better. But anyway... <laughs> Um, um, yeah, since I had this DSLR camera anyway, I brought it with me when I uh, traveled. I started enjoying taking pictures and indeed more pictures of people than people than pictures of landscape or whatever, because at least you can show the picture and there's a reaction and it's there is interaction. Um, and well, at first I didn't think I would just uh, take pictures of uh, of multiple people on trade shows like this, but it just came by itself. I then I could tag people on uh, on Facebook. I could even add people uh, that I had uh, taking taking a picture of, and I grew my Facebook uh, contact list quite a lot with that. I tell you, it's um, it's the sneakiest strategy for anyone who. By the way, if you ever want to, if you ever want to have every single, if you want to have access to every single person in the game industry, go friend Jan on Facebook. Because Jan's friends contact list on Facebook is uh, it's it's everyone it's it's literally everyone and it, and it comes from this it comes from you showing up at conventions taking pictures of like 500 people and then adding them all on Facebook it's sneaky but it's very effective and I'm I'm sure you didn't plan it like that from the beginning yeah I didn't plan it like that indeed uh, I would say well uh, it's not as bright as you as you suggest i would say um well indeed i'm connected to a lot of people on facebook doesn't mean that i know them well and that i would have the liberty to bother them for this or that right um uh, and um if I look at who my clients are and who I'm, whom I'm really doing business with, uh, I can tell that uh, almost none of them are people I, con I uh, how to say, created a bond with uh, through Facebook or through social media. Actually, most of my uh, the decision makers at my clients' companies, as far as I know, they don't really use social media. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, being popular on social media does not, so far at least for me, translate into uh, business opportunities. Yeah, but it does make but, you look cool. I mean, you got to you gotta give yeah. yourself that. I mean, you look really popular. And, you know, mm -hmm. we all know from high school that looking popular is almost as good as being popular. So, all right, so last question, and this is the, this is the question I'm asking everyone from here on out. Um, <laughs> If, if someone were to listen to this this podcast and they were to yeah. learn one thing about Jan Marshall that you were like, man, I hope everyone walks away from this podcast and they know this thing about me, what would it be? What would be the one thing you want people to like, God, I listen to this podcast from Jan Marshall and he said this thing. 
Oh shit, that's something I didn't uh, expect to be asked. And uh, uh, well, I should give a better warning know. on this. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, th that's typically the question you have to list in advance so that I can plan for an answer. Because uh, uh, all right, so the thing well, the thing we've learned about Jan is Jan likes to prepare for these kind of questions. That's if you're gonna learn one thing about Jan, Jan really would like to be asked these questions in advance. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. Think before you speak, and uh, if you're not getting, if you're not given enough time to to think, then don't speak. All right, fair enough. That's a fair enough answer. All right, so thank yeah. you so much for your time. This is this has been fun. You know, you and I have, we talk all the time, and I, you know, one of the things right. that I wanted to do with this podcast is I always have these conversations at, you know, we do the dinners and all the things at the conventions, and I always thought, right. you know. Man, I wish we had just recorded that so that somebody could just, if somebody were interested, they would just, they could just listen to this thing. And this has been one of those conversations. So I, I hope this has been fun for you. I hope this has been fun for yeah, sure. everyone who's listening. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And that's what we've got for the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I, I don't know if you tune into a podcast or clicking in or whatever you call it in any case we've got some more monologues and a lot of great interviews coming up they should all be uh there for you to go take a look at uh please enjoy that if you're really having a good time uh listening to these then let people know put it on your facebook put it on your twitter put it on your grinder i don't know wherever you put stuff like that if you're not enjoying it and you want to let me know why there's information in the info box you're welcome to get a hold of me and let me know what we can be doing to improve and uh maybe you want to just chat and say hi so check out the discord say hi to everybody and thank you very much we'll see you on the next show